welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Can we just stand to our feet and honour Sammy as she comes to bring us the word this evening? goodness thank you Mike you're just too lovely and that's the sort of stuff that I really don't like but thank you I really appreciate it so tonight is chapter five of Nehemiah I hope you've been enjoying the Nehemiah series and I hope you're ready for the next installment I've asked Hope Andrea to read it to us it's also hopefully going to appear on these tricky little screens behind us If you'd like to turn to it in your uh, Bibles on your phones, if you've got them, that might actually help. But the lovely Hope Andrea is going to make it even easier for you. We're going to read from verse 1 to 14. Amazing. So Nehemiah 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind. And then I accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people, only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they couldn't think of anything to say. So I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine and olive oil. We will give it back. They said, and then we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way may God shake out their house and possessions, anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and empty. At this whole assembly, they said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. Brilliant. We're going to stop it there, but that's effectively the gist of the chapter. You can carry on reading it in your own leisure, but it's pretty long, and Hope did really well, didn't she? (laughs) Now, just before I start, (coughs) excuse me, I just wanted to say this is a pretty hard-hitting chapter, as you've just 
scene. And I've, as I've been reading it and studying it for this talk, I've been really challenged personally by God. And so if you're happy with this, with your permission, I'd love you to allow me to um, bring some of that challenge that God's brought me to you tonight. And so this is possibly going to be one of the more challenging talks that we've brought as a church. So are you happy with that for me to maybe challenge you a little bit with what God's been saying to me? And I, and honestly be assured that whatever I say to you, God's been speaking to me about too. So there's no finger pointing here. Is that okay? Great. So... Up to now, we've seen how Nehemiah has established himself in authority and in his ability to lead a people from a dream to re-establish the walls of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple to then take personal responsibility for the building of it as he prays and intercedes before God and grapples with the political and administrative tasks that we all know go hand in hand with any position of responsibility. And then we've also seen how he's encouraged his team as, as they faced real discouragement and attack. But this chapter shows a different side to his character and his personality because he now faces a completely new issue. There's a serious social and economic problem which Nehemiah must handle quickly, firmly, and compassionately if the work on the wall is to be finished and the community is going to prosper. You see, in order to build the wall, Nehemiah had recruited laborers from all over Judah. And these people had taken a real step of faith and had left their normal jobs and their farms, their small holdings and vineyards to do it. And now, <coughs> excuse me, I'm going to cough a little bit. Is that okay? <coughs> and so now their sacrifice is really beginning to cut deep. This is because these laborers would have been the main breadwinners for their homes. So now many families are starting to go without food. And Judah has also just been through a period of famine. And so food supplies were already in short supply. And, so, and now um, there's these greedy merchants that are taking a, an advantage of this opportunity to inflate the price of grain. So people are therefore in the position of having to mortgage their fields, their vineyards and their homes just to get enough money to buy food for their families to eat. And the king has now increased tax on land. And the Israelite moneylenders are adding to the anguish by making them pay exorbitant interest rates on the money they've, lo they've loaned them. And so some families, having lost everything, find themselves in such dire straits that they're now left compelled to have to sell family members into slavery. And it's into this desperate need, this widespread poverty, that Nehemiah responds. And I love how real, how human, and how utterly raw 
Nehemiah is in his response. His first response is anger. He's angry about what he hears, about the way the people are being treated. Too right. It's completely unjust. However, this isn't an out-of-control temper. You know, there's times when anger is perfectly justified. And Nehemiah here is giving us a masterclass in how to use this emotion well. I really value seeing anger under control. That's because as a child, I grew up in a home where this wasn't the case. And small things would quickly fly into a rage and could be out of control. And there were many rows and it could be really quite frightening at times. And it's been really healing for me to know that emotions are normal. Anger's not a problem. It's a normal part of life. But it's the way we choose to respond to our emotions that's the issue. When Pete and I first got married, we had our first argument. And I thought, it's what everyone did. And I have to say, I was a bit relieved, if I'm honest, because I'd been kind of wondering why we'd not argued, and I'd been a bit worried that we weren't kind of like everyone else. Pete, however, was panicked because he thought that we were headed for divorce because he'd been brought up in a home where they'd never argued. He'd never witnessed a crossword between his mum and his dad when he'd grown up. So he thought we were headed for divorce and he immediately took us round to see the couple that we'd had marriage prep with. Imagine how I felt about that. <laughs> so they helped us get perspective. <laughs> and they helped us to grow in understanding and a deeper love for one another. And we've been married now for 25 years. And it's been so good for me to learn and to keep learning how to disagree well, without panicking, and without chucking my toys out of the pram. You see, emotions, while important, they shouldn't be our guide, because they're so changeable. I mean, have you noticed that you can go to bed feeling so strongly one way, and then you wake up feeling completely differently in the morning? Therefore, emotions are to be listened to, but more as the helpful passenger in the car, rather than giving them the driving seat of your life. So here, Nehemiah shows us how to respond. He feels angry, and then he does three things. Firstly, he waits because he wants to be able to make a considered and informed personal response to the issue. He says he pondered the situation in my mind. 
He thinks. He doesn't act straight away. If you act out of emotion, that's when things get out of hand. But if you act after consideration, that's when good things happen. That's when change can happen. That's when God can break in. So having considered all that was happening, Nehemiah realizes that the nobles and officials had been exacting usury, which was a practice condemned by God. The prophet Ezekiel in the Bible had stated that charging excessive interest and making unjust gain from your neighbors was one of Jerusalem's detestable practices. God had made it clear that it wasn't to be done. So having stated his opinion, in order to ensure that this accusation wasn't just an emotional rant, Nehemiah calls a large meeting in order to hear from the whole community so they could all hear from each other about all that had been happening. This meeting would ensure that everyone would be heard, there could be no private deals, the matter couldn't be ignored, and the situation would get fully resolved. And I need a little drink. (laughs) Feeling deeply about an issue is important But unless we get stirred to respond and help make a difference, then all that's been stirred are our emotions. And whilst that might make ourselves feel a bit better, nothing will change. The issue will will remain the same. It's only by responding to situations like Nehemiah did that we can know that we can see real change, that real breakthrough will come, and that we can advance the kingdom of God. And we're so privileged as a church to have so many people actively involved in the social and economic regeneration of our society, whether that's as a result of working for a major NGO such as Justice and Care or CSW, Tear Fund, ELAM or Concordia or others, or whether it's through volunteering diligently at the Lighthouse and our social transformation teams. It's by getting involved, by choosing to respond and making a difference that we can see change happen. And with that in mind, I'd love Eric to come and share a few words. Injustice didn't leave Nehemiah indifferent or passive, did it? Instead, he decided to pick a fight, and that's what we're about at Emmaus. My wife, Rebecca, and I head up the social transformation team, and we're committed to doing that, to picking a fight with injustice. We look around, and we see the brokenness of systems and communities and lives that leave a trail of poverty and pain. And we experience a a righteous anger about those issues. And we say, not on our watch, not in our town. So what makes you angry? What injustice or issue stirs within you towards action in the way that Sammy has spoken about? When you see certain things, what, what makes you want to do something about it? Just this week, our team met a guy who was smelly, unkempt, 
And as we talked to him, we discovered he hadn't eaten for four days. Now, he was actually, he had a job, but he was on a zero-hour contract. And currently, there wasn't much work in his industry, and he couldn't afford to live. He was struggling to survive. And that is the kind of thing that makes us angry. Here, in our town, no. We must do something about it. We made him breakfast, we sat down, had a cup of coffee, talked with him, listened to his story, um, gave him a food parcel, and took him around to the Citizens Advice Bureau to sit down and figure out what benefits was he entitled to, what support. He didn't know what help he could get, he didn't understand he could receive support. So to pick a fight with the system, with him and on his behalf, to work through that was important to us. Again, this week, we had a phone call from a Muslim woman who was absolutely desperate. She was distressed. Her husband, who had a job, had injured his back and couldn't work. And they had run out of everything. And in their culture, she was embarrassed to ask for help. There was shame attached to reaching out for help. So she had privately called us because she knew that we were people of compassion who maybe just could step in and do something. And so we made up food parcels for her and actually went around to the supermarket and bought some fresh food for her twin 10-year-olds and took it around to the house to deliver it. And she was so moved, she said, please, would you come upstairs to my husband who's, who's lying in bed with this bad back? And uh, our guys went up and offered to pray for him, said, we believe in Jesus, that he heals. Could we pray for your healing? And uh, they, they were delighted to receive prayer. And by the time they left... The, the woman was in tears. There was this really deep emotional connection because we had responded in action. You know, even here in leafy Surrey in Guildford, we are surrounded by significant poverty and de uh, deprivation. Did you know that Surrey has 25 of the most deprived neighborhoods in the country? And four of those neighborhoods are here in Guildford. And in three of those neighborhoods, over 25% of children, over a quarter of children, are living in poverty. Here, in our town, on our watch. What are we going to do about that? And we already have many of our Emmaus family working, engaged in addressing poverty and debt and deprivation in Guildford. We have people like Heather Roche and Sue Williams involved in leading the food banks with others volunteering on the teams. Uh, we have volunteers involved in Christians Against Poverty, uh, running um, uh, job clubs and uh, debt advice and, uh, and life skill workshops. We have a team that visits the residents at uh, Vaughan House Hostel every week and serves up a Sunday brunch once a month. We have people who are part of the Emerge Advocacy uh, Ministry that visits people, young people in the hospital who have been admitted um, because of self-harm or feeling suicidal. We've got folk working and volunteering with Matrix Trust that comes alongside vulnerable young people. And uh, we have the Ready for Action event that uh, about 40 of us were involved in last month. So we have lots of people involved in that. As Sammy said, we're a church that is intent on responding to that. But maybe you're here today and you haven't been involved. or You're wondering, how can you get involved? You know, do you want to pick a fight with injustice?
Well, let me tell you just some quick ways you can do that. Firstly, get involved in one of those projects I've mentioned. Bigger teams means a bigger reach and a bigger impact. So on your way out, we've got a, a stand at the back, and uh, we've got flyers with a list of all those projects I've mentioned and ways of you getting involved to pray and to serve and to give. So please grab one of those. But also, we have a couple of really specific one-off events this summer. On the 10th of August, we're holding an outreach event for families in need in the community. Uh, we're hiring out the mini railway in Stoke Park, and we'll be hosting them with a picnic and free train rides and that. And we'd love for people from our church family to attend with intention. So not just to come along for a freebie afternoon, but, but to come with the intent of either bringing people you're reaching out to or to connect with the families that, that we're, we're, we're ministering to, to become relational with them and, and uh, get alongside them. The, the other thing we have this summer is our Back to School Day on Friday the 30th of August. We, here in Founders, will be hosting a Back to School Day for families in need, giving them um, uh, school shoes, haircuts, backpacks, all sorts of things like that, uniforms, and we'd love you to come and participate with that and, and help us deliver that. So after the service, I'll be standing at the back. There'll be some people from some of those um, organizations I've mentioned. Please come and chat to us. Get some information. You can sign up to get involved. I'd love to speak to you then. Thanks. It's so fantastic, all that the Lighthouse projects and social transformation do. Thank you, Eric. Oh, I was meant to take a drink then, but never mind. Forget that. So, what can we take away from Nehemiah 5? Well, firstly, it says, Eric has brilliantly expressed, God cares for the needs of the poor and the oppressed. The Bible says it far better than I can in James 2, verses 14 to 18, reading it from the message. I think it's going to come up here. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved and say, good morning, friend, be clothed in Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense. I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, yeah, sounds good. You take care of the faith department and I'll take care of the works department. But not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. It's faith and works, works and faith. They fit together, like hand in glove. We have an incredible church, and I'm so aware that we're so blessed with an abundance of loving, caring people in here, from the lighthouse to collectives all the way through. You're amazing. And my heart is that Emmaus becomes known as the church who, because of God's extravagant love for us, love and care for others 
extravagantly. Secondly, Nehemiah 5 clearly teaches that God cares about our money. You know, it's true. We really don't like talking about money much. But unless we allow God to become Lord of all our lives, including our bank accounts, our spending habits, our wallets, then we're deluding ourselves if we really think he's Lord of our lives. You know, I think God's given me Pete to teach me to hold money lightly. You, you really can't not when you're married to a man like Pete. You see, Pete loves to give. He likes to give money. He likes to give gifts. He likes to give things. He likes to give our things away. I'll regularly come home and discover that something that I thought we'd got for ourselves, he's actually given away. He just can't help himself. He is a really lovely giver. But I have a secret confession to make to you tonight. My secret confession is I love to spend because I like shopping. I really like shopping. Um, yeah. And I'm learning. I've, I've learned, and I'm still learning, that it really is better to give than to get. It's much more fun to plan who to bless and to give to than to buy more and more stuff that I don't really need. And it's really important that we challenge ourselves and that I challenge myself. How much stuff is enough? You know, we've got this understairs cupboard at home and it's like a black hole. Anyone who's lived with us, any lodgers who's lived with us will testify to this. We just chuck our shoes in there and hope that when we ever want to wear them again, we'll be able to find them one day. It's this kind of pray and hope situation. And then once a year, we have the big dreaded shoe cupboard clear out. Well, I let one of the boys do it, actually because it's way too hideous for me. And I'm sure they take a sadistic pleasure in it because they line up the shoes by owner and by pair in the back garden, by lines. And there's this kind of, you have to then walk up and down by and have a look at your line and decide what you're going to keep, what you're going to... Uh, throw away and what you're going to give to charity. It's a kind of Marie Kondo for beginners, really. But it's, you know, always the same every year. Three neat little lines of three pairs of shoes for the boys. Pete, Hudson and Daniel have these, like, it's really great. Boots, trainers, and flip-flops. All very neat, functional, practical, and lovely. And they're like, no, I want to keep those. Great. And then there's my line. <sighs> and it's always the same. Impossibly long. And just every shoe, every boot of every style, every color and shape. And they take me on this walk of shame down this line. And I'm asked every year, why, mum, do you need all of these? 
what are you going to do with them all? And every year, I ask myself the same question. How many shoes or boots do I really need? And it's an important question. How many shoes or handbags or gadgets do we really need? And this is massively relevant to us and to the nation at a time when the divide between rich and poor is continually getting bigger. More than a fifth of the population live on incomes below the poverty line. And nearly one in three children live in poverty and the use of food banks is constantly rising. In Nehemiah 5, the nobles had made a god of money. They'd forgotten that though it's one of life's essentials, it's not a priority in the kingdom of God. You see, a ruthless pursuit of money and things can become a kind of insatiable desire that no amount of money will ever fulfill. And unless we understand this, we can end up in a kind of spiral of credit and debt, chasing after a false dream fed to us by advertisers who've been paid for by businesses, all chasing after the same dream that tells us we're just one more product away from achieving or being what we've always wanted to be. And Nehemiah speaks right into the heart of this. And, we, and he reminds us to get our hearts right and to truly allow God to become Lord of all our lives. And thirdly, God cares about the way we build and not just what we build. Nehemiah knew that it wasn't just money problems, but it was injustice that was at the heart of the issue. And he knew that the only way he was going to be able to rebuild Jerusalem was to root this out in order to build something that would last. You see, the means do not justify the ends in the kingdom of God. We're not free to sacrifice our values on the altar of an all-consuming vision whether it's rebuilding Jerusalem, building a brilliant business, helping our kids to be successful at school, or even mobilizing the church to, be, to pray, play, and obey, dare I say. The way we treat one another and the way we behave will make or break our testimony to those who don't know Jesus. John 13, verse 35 says, By this... All will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And Nehemiah here cuts right to the heart of the injustice. And he does it by speaking of his own personal practice. In verse 10 he says, And likewise I, my brothers and my servants, lend them money and grain. But then he says, But leave off the usury. What he's effectively saying is, you didn't have to do what you did. You could have followed my brothers and my example as we didn't exploit the situation or take advantage of the people. You see, Nehemiah had been meeting the needs of the people and out of his own pocket. 
He'd been lending them land and grain. But unlike the others, he'd not charged interest and he'd not attempted to make a profit out of their poverty. And Nehemiah sets a great example for them. He's not trying to say he's perfect. (coughs) But when God calls you to stand against injustice, then speak up and lead by example. And this is what we're called to do. This is how we'll see change happen. And this is how we can show Jesus to a watching, needy world. You know, we're all called to lead in some way. Whether that's at home, or at school, or at work, or in the church. And whilst it's true that we can't deal with every injustice we see in the world... We can do something about the injustices we see in the places we're called to lead in and to live in. And we can see it for what it is, and we can respond to it just like Nehemiah did. Our vision as a church isn't to build ourselves up and have some wonderful building just for ourselves, but it's to make a measurable difference amongst the poor and the lost. So as I said at the start, (laughs) it's a pretty challenging passage of scripture. But it's one where I think we need to make a response in some way if we're going to be true to God. So how can we respond? I think there's five ways that we can. Is that okay? Firstly, I think if you're caught up in a cycle of debt and it's been something that you've just not been able to get out of, I'd love you to talk to Eric tonight. He can put you in touch with people that can help. We'd love to help you to get out of that cycle and to get on the road to sorting this situation out. Secondly, if you'd like to get involved in the work of the Lighthouse and Social Transformation, then as Eric said, we would love that. Eric's got an information stand. There's going to be people. Oh, there it is. There's going to be people around there at the end. Please go and talk to him and to the others. There's going to be brochures there. There's going to be ways you can sign up for the different projects. You can get stuck in. We'd love to help you find out how you can play your part in making a difference in people's lives. There's loads of different ways, loads of different projects. There's bound to be a way that you can play a part that makes you feel you're in the right place doing the right thing. Thirdly, if you know that you've not allowed God to be Lord of your spending, I'd love to ask you now to take some time to ask him, what's he asking you to change? How can you be different? Maybe it would be good to talk with a friend or a collective leader or if you're married, talk to your partner. And if you'd like to think about giving, perhaps that's not been something you've been doing, then I really would urge you to consider making that a priority in your life. See, allowing God to be Lord of all your life, including your money, really will be the most freeing and exciting step you can make. Being bound by money really does weigh you down. And it's an endless cycle that you can't 
feel free of until you allow God to be in control. Fourthly, are we all right for time? Hey, if you know you're pursuing a vision that's been making you sacrifice your values as a Christian, whether that's at home or at work or at church or at college, I want you to ask yourself, at what cost are you prepared to allow that to happen? And is God challenging you today to speak up or stand up for what you believe? And if that's the case, then chat with someone tonight. Speak up about it. Do something. Make a decision tonight. This is how we can make a difference. This is how you can make a difference in the places that you've been called. And lastly, if God was maybe highlighting something to you, and I was talking about making emotions the passengers in your car, rather than giving them the driving seat. Or if I were, something, if God was maybe nudging you when I was talking about anger and our response to it, then it would be great if you'd come and maybe talk to me or Mike or some of the team here. We'd love to pray with you tonight. It's not about getting rid of anger. It's about helping you to get to be able to choose how you respond to it. So there we are, five ways to respond to Nehemiah 5. I think that's pretty cool. What do you reckon? Okay, Mike, over to you.